This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to If That, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Will Oremus. Welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We are recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, March 13th. And on today's show, we'll talk about how sanctuary cities may unwittingly be sharing data with ICE through police surveillance tech. We'll also discuss Elon Musk's plan to colonize Mars and how that's going. Later, we'll be joined by Adam Mosseri the head of newsfeed at Facebook, to talk about how his team thinks about its responsibility to inform the public and how they tackle incredibly complex problems ranging from fake news in the United States to Facebook-fueled hate campaigns in Myanmar. And of course, don't close my tabs. Some favorites from the web this week. So, Will, uh, what kind of caught your eye this week as you've been following the news? Well, this week has seen the annual tech and media conference in Austin, known as South by Southwest, one of the big speakers this year, a surprise appearance by Elon Musk, the visionary entrepreneur slash inventor slash huckster, depending on whom you ask, who is trying to help the human race colonize Mars. He gave an update on those lofty plans. He said the goal is to put a cargo mission on Mars by 2022, but he could be ready to send test rockets to Mars as soon as next year, 2019. There was a caveat there. He said, there's a good chance you will die if you try to go on those missions. So good to know. Uh, Also good to know they're making progress on what sounds like just an insanely ambitious goal. Right. So colonizing Mars. (laughs) Do you think this is really going to (laughs) happen? That's always the question with Elon Musk. I mean, he does not do anything small. He does go to outer space regularly, right? I mean, SpaceX has reached the cadence that they said they would reach, which is, you know, regularly every month or so, or I, I don't know exactly what it is, but but they're they're going up as regularly as they'd hoped. Yeah, he always sets for himself with every project, there's this this overarching goal, like with SpaceX, it's it's not just we're gonna build some rockets, it's we're gonna colonize Mars for the human race because Earth might become uninhabitable and we need a backup plan. For for Tesla, right. the electric car company, it's not just we're gonna make electric cars cool again. I mean that would have been that would have seemed like an impossible enough task when they when they started on it. No, the goal with Tesla is to transition the world off of a carbon-based economy. Uh, and they're just electric cars are just the start. And when when he makes these promises, your first thought is, this guy's nuts. This is never going to happen. And then inevitably, somehow, it kind of does happen, at least in most cases so far. Uh, every goal he sets for himself seems crazier than the last. But so far, he hasn't totally flopped and fallen on his face yet. To his credit, he does do advocacy on planet Earth around environmental issues, whether it's carbon emissions or, you know, urging the U.S. to sign the climate accord. 
I will say, though, you know, in reading his kind of most recent, you know, takeaway from the from from talking about the Mars plan, it did sound um, a little childish, I want to say. You know, he he talked about um, how people will live amongst each other, how everyone will vote on every single thing on the new Mars colony. You know, it kind of made me feel like maybe Silicon Valley doesn't ultimately understand the way democracy works. <laughs> I'm not sure. You're kidding. It's definitely um, an exciting proposal, uh, if not a straight up, you know, colonial one. <laughs> well, it's definitely colonial. I mean, and then the question is, yes. are we OK? with colonial if it if it means colonizing Mars where there are no humans uh, and and you know no life as far as we know that doesn't seem like as as uh, problematic a form of colonialism as some of the ones we're familiar with from the 20th century and before i think you know musk is such a fascinating figure he dreams so big at a time when a lot of people feel like it's hard for societies or democracies to accomplish big things he has sort of stepped in and now in the private sector, we see these types of moonshots. I apologize, that term has obviously become a cliche in Silicon Valley, but with Musk, it's it's literally true. Um, you know, he's sending sending rockets to the moon and beyond. Uh, I think it's I think we need somebody like him. And you can worry about the fact that we can't do this collectively anymore, that we're letting private companies and privately held companies do the hard work of these huge societal projects like transitioning us off of carbon or, or colon, you know, whatever, exploring Mars, colonizing Mars. I think he's the person, I think he's a person we need in society today, for better or worse. I hear all of that. I also just know that one in four kids in Philadelphia are hungry every day. I just think there are a lot of problems here on Earth that we absolutely need to tackle. Uh, you know, and he has said that he hopes the price of admission to Mars will one day drop to 200000 per traveler. That's still, a, you know, a, a recklessly large amount of money by by at least my standards. Um, but uh, following what he says here, I'm fascinated by it. And, uh, you know, apparently this isn't the final word on his Mars, uh, his Mars dreams. April, you have a fascinating new piece out in Slate. The headline is Sanctuary Cities Are Handing ICE a Map. ICE being the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that local police departments and sheriffs and what have you, departments that are within sanctuary cities or sanctuary counties. And when I say sanctuary cities or sanctuary counties, I'm referring to, you know, municipalities or, or areas that have specific laws in place that are meant to protect residents from deportation, right? Uh, and from deportation specifically at the hands of ICE. So often these are laws that go against federal laws uh, that, that are made to protect their residents. In these uh, sanctuary cities and, and, and sanctuary counties across the country, but I was looking really specifically at California because that's where ICE recently had a raid in Northern California at the end of the month where over 200 people were arrested and will potentially be deported. In these places that are ostensibly areas that are supposed to be safer for immigrants, um, police are sharing data with ICE that could be used to target and uh arrest and eventually deport immigrants. And the data that they're sharing specifically is license plate reader data. And that data is collected in a database that is run by a private company. So uh, it's kind of a, you know, back end way that ICE is able to actually get data from places that are specifically supposed to be keeping immigrants safe. So how does this work exactly? So the police have these license plate readers on their cars, and then they can somehow 
keep track of all the license plates that they're seeing as they're out on patrol and that gets sent to a database somewhere? Sure. So to to back up a little bit, uh, license plate readers specifically uh, don't just have to be on police cars. They are often mounted to light poles or, you know, uh, on overpasses. And it's true that they they pretty much collect every license plate that passes by them, right? And when they collect that uh, license plate image, they're also collecting the, the time and the date Uh, of when the car passed by. Um, And with that information, they're able to paint a pretty specific picture, you know, with enough license plate readers installed across the city of where a person works or who they hang out with or where they live, you know, ostensibly making it a lot easier for, you know, ICE or or, or any other federal investigator to to find who they're looking for. Recently, uh, at least in the case of Northern California and, and, you know, in Oakland, that has meant... uh, that has meant people who uh, are immigrants and, and perhaps don't have documentation. And so a private company called Vigilant Solutions runs most of the license plate reader uh, tech and um, a- as well as the databases. Uh, they don't collect the license plates themselves. They run the database that, uh, that all the license plate data goes into. And that database is shared by hundreds and hundreds of agencies across the country, including agencies that are within the Department of Homeland Security, as well as agencies that are investigation units within ICE. ICE is part of the Department of Homeland Security. So essentially, if, you know, Los Angeles sheriffs uh, within Los Angeles County are collecting uh, license plate reader data, even though Los Angeles County is a, you know, a sanctuary protected county, that data, you know, could very easily be making its way to ICE uh, because uh, because DHS and and various, you know, offices that are connected to ICE uh, have access to this database. I find this so fascinating because we so often when we talk about mass surveillance and technology, we're thinking about the really big companies that everybody knows, the Googles and the Facebooks. There's been so much hand-wringing about face recognition technology and how that could be used for surveillance. And I think all of that is warranted and, and justified. But at the same time, we have these much quieter forms, less flashy forms of mass surveillance that are already happening. And you have companies, I had never heard of Vigilant Solutions before, but most of us go around all day in cars, or at least a lot of us, especially outside of, of urban centers, go around all day in cars and we're basically broadcasting to the authorities where we are at any given point. That's without any kind of need for face recognition technology or for you know, Facebook or Google to sell our online behavioral data. Yeah, I think it's also really important to remember that these license plate readers, they're not just collecting information on immigrants. Of course, I bring that up because it's, you know, a particularly troublesome case where we might see a place that's supposed to be safe actually be sharing data with immigration agents. Uh, but but this is a dragnet surveillance. And so anybody that passes under it is going to be put into that database. And, you know, that could be tapped by you know, a law enforcement agency on the other side of the country or the forestry service, you know, also has access to the database. I mean, so many different uh, groups do. Uh, basically, your 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 every move, if you're in a car in a place that has this license plate reader technology uh, is available. All right, that's a good place to leave it. We're going to take a short break and then our interview with Facebook's head of newsfeed, Adam Mosseri.
Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our guest today is Adam Mosseri head of newsfeed at Facebook. Adam has worked at Facebook for nearly a decade and served as a vice president of product management for the last two years. His team is in charge of, among other things, the newsfeed algorithm. That's that ultra-complex software that decides what you see at the top of your feed every time you open Facebook. Adam's position as the de facto public face of the newsfeed has put him at the center of some of the most fascinating controversies in the technology and media worlds today. We're glad to have him on the show. Welcome to If Then, Adam. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We've talked a lot about what you've been up to on this show in the past few months. It's been a very eventful few months. And I want to just quickly run down a couple of the big picture changes that we've seen and then get your thoughts on a broad philosophical question. So since December, we have seen Facebook talk about pulling a little bit back from public content and passive consumption, moving toward interactions with friends and family. There's a phrase, meaningful interactions, that has come up a lot among Facebook's new priorities. We've also seen Facebook make a series of changes intended to improve the quality of the news that people do get in their feeds. So we've seen a new survey implemented where you're trying to gauge how trusted various news sources are so that you can boost the trusted sources in the feed. We've seen changes where you're trying to identify sources of local news so you can bring some local news back into people's Facebook feeds. It sounds like you're both sort of pulling back from Facebook as a news source and trying to improve Facebook as a news source. Obviously, Facebook has become a critical news source for people around the world. But is that a business you want to be in? I mean, do you want that responsibility of being people's daily newspaper and people's connection to politics? Is that a role Facebook embraces? News matters to a lot of people. So I don't think there's any future where news isn't a part of newsfeed. Uh, And I think we embrace that. But you can organize a lot of the work that we do and all the work that you mentioned at a high level into two categories. One is trying to do more to nurture the good, to connect people, to inform people, um, whether that is through um, interactions or conversations or valuing trustworthy news or valuing local content, but also to try and address um, the bad. Um, to try to identify problems like clickbait or false news or sensationalism and doing what we can to reduce the spread or change the incentives of each of those types of content. I think what you're seeing with the announcements that we made so far this year and that you will see with the announcements um, that are yet to come is that we're trying to take both very, very seriously. So we're going to play a clip now from Audrey Cooper, who is the editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle. Here she's speaking with Bob Garfield of On the Media from earlier this year. She's talking after Facebook announced major major changes to the news feed. At the end of the day, they make these very seemingly capricious decisions 
They don't get any buy-in for it. But, you know, the people who say news media shouldn't have relied on Facebook, I just say, well, what was the option? You know, to ignore where everybody else was reading news? I became a subscriber to The Washington Post and The New York Times and Mother Jones magazine because I saw their stories on my news feed and I would click through and I really got engaged with that content and I became a subscriber. Almost every major newsroom in America nowadays is funded that way, at least in part. So she's speaking in part to the fact that when people go online to get news, there are really only a couple places that they go, Google and and Facebook. And those places kind of act as, you know, curators for what people see and, and what they don't see. You know, I'm curious, should publishers rely on Facebook to get their stories out there? I mean, was that a big mistake? Because she's speaking to the fact that they've been having to kind of play this hurry up and catch up game with the company as it changes its newsfeed. I know we actively try not to be capricious in what we launch, um, which is what she sort of started with. I do think we need to do a better job explaining what we're doing and how we're doing it so that people don't miss um, our intent. And so I think we need to do a better job there. I think we are large enough that it's important for publishers to think about our platform and about specifically how they can leverage it for whatever their needs are. And different publishers have different needs based on their business models, based on their um, editorial point of view, based on their content strategies, et cetera. But I also think that it's important that we're not publishers only strategy, that they think about their readership holistically and that they understand that there are important differences between people who come across their articles passively in newsfeed when they are just trying to catch up on the day and a reader who seeks them out directly, um, which in an intentful way where the mindset is very different. And I think the value of the reader is very, very different. And so I think we're an important part of a lot of publishers' strategies and that's a good thing. But I also encourage publishers to think about us as one piece of a larger set of opportunities. And more specifically to be really intentional about how they leverage the platform. If you're a subscription-based business model, which a lot of um, large publishers are moving towards, I think the most important thing that we can provide as a platform for you as a publisher is to be an acquisition channel for subscribers. If you're an advertising-based business, I think the value you can get out of our platform is very different. And the strategy should reflect that difference. There was some criticism this week from a perhaps unlikely source of Facebook's role in the news, a UN report where they're investigating whether there has been genocide against the Rohingya people in Myanmar, mentioned that Facebook has helped to fuel hatred of the Rohingya people there. And uh, when I ask folks on Twitter, what should we ask you? Because everybody has a lot of questions for you these days. I noticed that, that by the way. <laughs> that was one that came up again and again, is how do you think about your responsibility? Uh, you know, you're sitting there in Menlo Park with your team. You're trying to be thoughtful about ways to change the news feed uh, to, to better serve your readers and to give them what they want. But sometimes that turns into helping maybe to, to fan the, the flames of, of hatred uh, in a country uh, halfway across the world. What do you do? What do you know? How do you think about that kind of problem? What do you do when you hear that kind of criticism? Uh, and, and what's your process that you take to address something like that? So it's important for us to remember that technology isn't naturally a good or a bad thing. It's sort of um, agnostic, and it's just how technology is used that can be either good or bad. 
Similarly, connecting the world isn't always going to be a good thing. Sometimes it's also going to um, have negative consequences. The most um, concerning and severe um, negative consequences of any platform potentially would be real world harm. So what's happening on the ground in Myanmar is deeply concerning in a lot of different ways. Um, it's also challenging for us in a number of for a number of reasons. There is false news um, not only on Facebook but in general in Myanmar. But there are no, as far as we can tell, third party fact checking organizations with which we can partner, which means that we need to rely instead on other methods of addressing some of these issues. We look heavily actually for bad actors. Um, at things like whether or not they're violating our terms of service or community standards to try and use those levers to try and address the proliferation of some problematic content. We also try to rely on the community as effectively as we can and changing incentives around things like clickbait or sensational headlines, which correlate but aren't the same as false news. And so those are all examples of how we're trying to take the issue seriously. But we, we lose some sleep over this. I mean, real-world harm and what's happening on the ground and that part of the world is actually one of the most concerning things for us and something that we talk about on a regular basis, um, specifically about how we might be able to do more um, and be more effective and more quickly. Lately, there's a whole new set of issues that have come to the fore, particularly since the 2016 election, which is what if in the process of trying to give people what they want, you end up uh, undermining civil discourse in various ways, you know, reinforcing filter bubbles or allowing uh, foreign foreign agents to interfere in ele an election by posting content that plays on people's emotions and gets them riled up. I mean, sometimes people want to get riled up about how evil uh, liberals are, how evil conservatives are, and Facebook seems to have unintentionally maybe optimized for that, uh, for, for sort of stoking that kind of division in our society. So how do you now think about what the goal of Facebook is, particularly vis-a-vis -vis news and politics. I mean, I understand you're working at the same time on these issues of meaningful interactions with friends and family, which is really the core, I think, of what you want Newsfeed to be about. But when you're thinking about its role in society, do you now, have you moved past in some way that the, that the goal is just to give people what they want or make them feel good? And are you moving towards some sense of broader societal or, or democratic uh, uh, obligations in terms of what you're prioritizing? the feed? Historically, we haven't been trying to focus Newsfeed on giving people exactly what they want or what makes them feel good, though I think it, the, our work gets categorized uh, as such pretty often, but rather we've been trying and maybe not being particularly effective at connecting people with what they would find meaningful, which I think is an important distinction to make. And you're asking about not only long-term interests, but you're asking about do we have a responsibility to society as a whole or to groups or to communities of people? Um, and I think those things are related. I think people's long-term interests tend to be more aligned with the interests of a community, and their short-term interests seem to be more focused on their interests as an individual. Um, and we have been trying to broaden. So we've been trying to consider more how do we think about what is the most effective or what's the best newsfeed that we can possibly create, not only for an individual, but also for a community, for communities at large. Um, and we've one of the ways that we've been doing that is we've been trying to better understand people's longer-term interests, which are, quite frankly, more difficult to understand and measure and optimize for. But I have found no evidence in my time working on Newsfeed that there's a correlation between easy to measure and important. And so that's just why it's so critical that we um, get better at this and get better at this quickly. 
And it's not just, though, about, you know, what people want to see or, or you know, who they, you know, who they follow, who are their friends that, that maybe show them stuff that perhaps they disagree with, but they are friends with them or have them in their social circles. There's also stuff that people kind of need to see, like like local political information, you know, uh, about local races or other you know, things that may be going on in, in the civic life locally that they won't access unless it somehow intersects with them. It might be something that they don't choose to follow a page, but 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 it would still benefit them greatly to know this. And they depend on Facebook for their news. And so I'm curious how Facebook is grappling with, you know, making sure that people are getting the information that they need to see, like local news, for example. It's important for us to remember that given our scale, there are certain types of decisions that I think would be appropriate to make and certain types of decisions that would be inappropriate to make. And I don't mean to suggest that we are objective or, or neutral, right? We have a set of values. We have a set of standards. Those values and standards are reflected in the decisions that we make every day and they affect what people see. But I think there are certain ways in which we can pursue those values that are, would make sense given our scale and there's certain ways that wouldn't make sense. So to get to your specific question, we believe that local content, local news, but not only news, local information about what's happening in your community, in your neighborhood is incredibly important. Um, it's the bedrock in a lot of ways of local communities, which are suffering in all sorts of ways um, all over the country. We also know that local news publishers are um, suffering significantly as well. And I think pursuing ways of valuing more local content in newsfeed is absolutely something that's appropriate and something that we're actively doing. And part of the reason why it's okay for us to do that is because people tell us on a regular basis that they want to see more local content they're not they're not seeing it enough. And there's a lot of reasons that might be happening. But deciding what specific issues in a local community are the key ones for that community to know about in a specific, in, a, in any given day is probably not appropriate for us given our scale, but also not practical. I mean, given the number of places in the world in which we operate, I don't think that there's any way we could actually have an informed opinion on specific issues in specific communities all over the world every day. And so what we try and do is understand the root value, in this case, that local, local information and news and otherwise is important to communities and is in line with our values and our mission as a company to bring people closer together and then pursue that in a way that makes sense and is also scalable. Lately, I've seen several changes from Facebook that are the type of changes that, that I've sort of been advocating or arguing that Facebook should make for a long time, which is where you've done things like saying, you know what, we are going to try to prioritize news from publishers that people trust. We are going to try to prioritize news from local outlets. I mean, those are those are value judgments on Facebook's part, and you can correct me if, if, you, if you disagree. But then the question is, how do you implement those? And that's where I think your team's work is really fascinating. So you're, you're trying to solve this question of how do we show people more news from trusted publishers as opposed to these sort of fly-by-night fake news or hyper-partisan sites that maybe they've never heard of. You came up with a method to do that, and it was basically to survey users and ask them two questions. You, you, you provide them with a set of names of publications, you know, the Wall Street Journal, Breitbart, uh, Slate.com. You ask them, number one, have you heard of this outlet? Number two, do you trust it? 
Now, when you guys came out with that, there was a lot of criticism. They said how, you know, this is a really complex question of how you evaluate a news publisher's credibility. And you guys came up with what seemed like a very blunt, crude instrument to measure that. Isn't the devil in the details sometimes in terms of, of, of how you measure something like that? And how does your team, what's the process by which your team at a, arrives at the methodology uh, for adding a new feature to the news feed like that? No matter how a, a feed is built, and it's not just Facebook, there are other feeds out there, there's, you're always optimizing for something. Even if you had a strictly chronological, unfiltered experience, that would be valuing recency above all else. And there are clear downstream implications of doing so, which you can predict, and therefore you are somewhat responsible for. So I, I think it's important that we are clear and upfront and honest about that. And I think we're, that's what we're trying to do on Newsfeed. Um, we've had values for a while. We're trying to be more explicit about what those are and communicate more effectively about how we're pursuing them and get more sophisticated in how we pursue them. On the trustworthy change, I don't think we did a great job explaining how it works and why it was designed the way it was designed. I think you're right, the devil's in the details and the, the details are incredibly important. In this case, um, I think the misconception was that it was essentially a popularity contest, that whatever publisher got the most people to say that it was trusted would do the best. But the system or the, or the methodology was specifically designed to be difficult to be gamed and to try and understand not only on an individual basis, um, who does an individual trust a publisher, but on an aggregate basis, what publishers were broadly trusted. So that is to say, the way it works is not that the one, the average person can't just fill out a survey, right? We survey a random sample of people and we do it every day to make sure that that data is um, as unbiased as possible and constantly fresh. But two, we don't just value publishers that get um, the most positive responses higher. What we specifically do is we look for Publishers where a wide variety of types of readers trust that publisher. And we do that because primarily we want it to be difficult to game, um, but also because we think that publishers that are broadly trusted are probably more trustworthy in general and more reliable than ones that might be trusted by a small group of people who are very fervent um, supporters, but not trusted by anybody else. That was taking what was a simple question Yes, it's only two questions, and I think simple questions are usually more effective in surveys for getting clean signal. Integrating that with data we have about reading or reading patterns or behaviors um, and trying to make a more sophisticated um, methodology that I think overall is actually um, really effective. The big issue, which wasn't really the criticism at the time, but my biggest worry about the methodology is that it only works for publishers for whom we have for whom we have sufficient data, so therefore for whom are have you know large awareness. It's, it does not help small publishers or hurt small publishers. And so we need to figure out how to broaden that methodology to be more effective for the whole ecosystem, not just for the head. A lot of people have called over the years for Facebook to be more transparent in various ways. What are the forces against transparency? I mean, why can't you just come out and tell people, hey, here's exactly how we're going to measure you know, trust in various publishers. Here's our exact system. Let's put it out there. Let's let academics take a look at it. Let's get some criticism, get some feedback. Um, you know, this might sound like a dumb or obvious question, but why can't you publish the, uh, you know, the code for the newsfeed algorithm? Why can't you put it out there? And I mean, Facebook is so big at this point. I, I can't imagine some other social media company is going to come along and steal it all and become 
you know, replicate Facebook. Why can't you be more transparent about exactly how Facebook works? So I think we can be more transparent. I think we're trying to be. I think we aren't doing as good a job as I would like. I don't think releasing all the source code would be particularly helpful. I think there's a very small percentage of people who would actually be able to read it. There's a lot of it. So we're trying to focus more on how to more effectively educate more people, which means explaining things in a different way than with code. But in general, there are there are there are forces in the other direction, right? So one is I, I don't want to I want to what I want to be very clear about is what we value, how we pursue those values, how things work. But if we get too into the details and a detail changes, then we're going to have to communicate every change and we might actually create a lot of stress or anxiety about details that don't really matter. So what I try to do is what we're what we're trying to do is focus on communicating the things that matter and I and I we are I think doing a little bit better, but we have a long way to go on this road. But the other tension is when we make a mistake, we're just going to get beat up for it. Um, and which is why we want to be really careful. If we release a statistic and it turns out to be wrong in some way because there's a bug in the code or there was some nuanced measurement that we missed, we're going to, you know, get a lot of criticism very, very quickly. And we need to understand that. Uh, I'm not complaining about it, but we need to embrace that, which just means that we need to be very, very careful in what we release and how we release it to make sure that it's accurate so as to not waste people's time and also uh, accrue a reputation cost. And often the people who are asking or demanding for more transparency are the ones that are quickest to criticize us when we get things wrong, which I think is just the nature of our reality at this point and something that we're trying to figure out how to navigate as responsibly as we can. It's true. Facebook is very powerful and people are quick to criticize it. And that's actually a great note to end on. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. One last thing I'll say before I go is Please. I do think at the end of the day, the criticism is or the scrutiny is healthy. It's not always pleasant. Um, I, I engage with, I talk to a lot of people and not all of them are the biggest fans of us or what we do or, or even me sometimes. I was looking at some of your, the responses to your retweet, Will, uh, and it's always like, I'll say lively and, and, and healthy debate. <laughs> but at the end of the day, I really do think that criticism helps us shed light on our blind spots, helps us be um, more self-aware. Um, and I think that's um, painful but healthy. Well, as journalists, we definitely appreciate that. Thank you so much for joining us, Adam. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Adam. We're going to take another break and then don't close my tabs. Some of our favorite things online this week. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, it's time once again for Don't Close My Tabs, some of the most interesting things we saw on the web this week. 
April, what tab could you not close this week? So mine was from Politico magazine. The title is This is What Happens When Bitcoin Miners Take Over Your Town. It's about a city in eastern Washington that had cheap power and a lot of land. And then people came to run these kind of Bitcoin mining operations there. And it's about kind of the stress that it took on the town, the massive amount of energy that it takes to mine a Bitcoin, uh, the people that were involved, the characters. And it really gets at the heart of the fact that these kinds of boom and busts that we hear about all the time in tech have, you know, a whole infrastructure and people behind them and uh, are often taxing on communities wherever they decide to camp out. And that's not always in Silicon Valley. Yeah, obviously, there are a lot of fascinating applications for the technology. At the same time, it seems to inherently rely on massive energy use. How big of an issue could that be in the long term? Right. Uh, you know, one of the the pieces from the story that, that really struck me, they're building sites with apparently tens of thousands of servers and electrical loads, right, with like 30 megawatt electrical loads. And to put that in perspective, that's enough power. That's enough to power a neighborhood, it says, of 13 thousand homes, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, to, to, to mine one Bitcoin, you know, a, apparently could can power something like, you know, a, a number of homes just for a single Bitcoin. The amount of energy that, that it takes to, to run this software and to do this process is, is just unreal. So I really recommend people read that. It was a beautifully written story, and it was about a place that uh, probably most people have never heard of, and that's always nice to read about as well. Um, Will, what uh, what caught you this week? What what tab could you not close? My tab is about a technology that we do not often talk about on a program like this. The technology is that of washing machines. There was a really fascinating piece in the wire cutter which is this consumer review site that's now owned by the New York Times. They do great work. I absolutely recommend them when you need a recommendation for any kind of consumer product. They wrote a piece that was headlined, Speed Queen, The Life and Death of Internet Commenters' Favorite Washing Machine. This was written by a guy who has been reviewing washing machines for a long time. He said, in my whole career, I've never once seriously considered recommending a Speed Queen top loader. There are all kinds of reasons for that. Top-loading machines in general are less efficient than front-loading machines. They perform worse or at least not better on a variety of indicators that all the mainstream review publications look at. And yet, Speed Queen in particular has this incredibly loyal following. And every time this guy would recommend his washing machines, the Speed Queen loyalists would come out of the woodwork and say, there's nothing like a Speed Queen. I will never <laughs> use anything Speed but Queen Speed loyalists. Queen. And so this guy, yeah. And so this guy did what I think we in the media don't do enough. He was like, what if they've got a point? You know, what if I've had a blind spot here? So he went out and sought out some of these commenters who were raving about Speed Queen. Said, well, look, we've got all this test data that shows that it doesn't perform as well as front-loading machines. Why do you love it so much? And they actually pointed out a few things that he realized he may have been overlooking. Um, people said that the Speed Queen top loaders with the, their agitator action can get really, really dirty clothes clean 
more reliably than front loaders. They just, I mean, all that energy waste is not going, it's not entirely a waste. Like the agitation motion really gets out dirt and stains that you can't get other ways. And the mainstream consumer tests just weren't testing clothes that were quite dirty enough to push the front loaders to their limits. So this guy issued sort of a mea culpa, said, you know, maybe the Speed Queen folks did have a point if you wash a lot of heavy duty gear. Um, you know, we, we washing machine reviewer elites on the coast maybe just don't get our clothes dirty enough to, to make the virtues of the Speed Queen machines uh, totally apparent. Well, as somebody who just recently uh, got a dryer, I like basically live on a boat half the time and also dry my clothes on a line a lot when I can. Um, I love having a washing machine and a dryer. It's completely changed everything for me. So uh, so always, uh, at least it's interesting to me, for me to, to hear that there's these little quiet debates happening because I'm just happy to have one. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love the fact that there are these communities of people who will, who will just devote hours to, to arguing the virtues of various washing machines. There was a little bit of a sad twist at the end, though. One of the big Speed Queen loyalists actually uh, reviewed the latest Speed Queen and found that it wasn't up to par. They had changed stuff around. Speed Queen got really mad at him, put him on a blacklist, and it turned into a whole controversy. So I recommend you give this a read if you have a chance. It's, it's in the wire cutter. All right. I will definitely check that out. And that is our show. You can get updates about what's coming up next week by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. You can follow me and April on Twitter as well. I'm at Will Remus, and April is at April Azer. Thanks again to our guest, Adam Mosseri. You can follow him on Twitter at Mosseri, M-O-S-S-E-R-I. And if you like the show, please help us spread the word about it. We would really appreciate it if you could leave us a comment or a review or both on iTunes or wherever you listen. Thanks. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Don Aulis at A Room with a VU Studios in Santa Barbara. And thanks to Jesse Nichols at Fantasy Studios here in Berkeley. We'll see y'all next week. Bye.